Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. Mandy is lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own Fair Trade Cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's a regular contributor to Leadership Journal. She's the author of Making a Mess and Meeting God, and also most recently of The Vulnerable Pastor, How Human Limitations Empower Our Ministry. And she is a good friend who I always enjoy talking with. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you my friend, Mandy Smith. Mandy, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. It is. It's good to have you. And we've we've spoken many times on yes. other podcasts and also just in general, in person, mm-hmm. on the phone, uh, via social media, all means of communication. We have usually we have we have connected on them. And I've talked with you a little bit about in the past about your book that's that came out last year, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The Vulnerable Pastor, How Human Limitations Empower Our Ministry. It's been very well received, and it's not the only thing I want to talk to you about today or with you about. But it is, I mean, it is an interesting provocative thesis that on one level, if you read the New Testament, right, this is a baseline thing. You lose your life, <laughs> you save it, you know, you try to preserve it and try to preserve your own power and strength that ultimately you're, that will be a losing proposition. And yet, this is something that seems uh, in practice to be an incredibly provocative idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> most people just don't function that way in church and society. You know, I mean, vulnerability is seemingly just so hard to live into. Right, right. And it's one of those things where we won't really experience it unless we take the risk to live into it. And so we uh, have to trust this promise that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness and actually let our weakness be seen and even just confront it in our own minds and and lives. And um, only then, after kind of taking that leap, do we actually come to experience how powerful it is and how true it is. But it has to cost us that first, I think. And this is something even for yourself, right? I mean, it, it, it was a journey. I mean... Mm-hmm. Especially as a, as a, someone that's a woman in ministry, which is oftentimes in lots of traditions still predominantly male, uh, some of this right has been le- learning to be comfortable in your own skin. Oh, absolutely, constantly, yeah. And I don't think I had realized how deep this is ingrained in myself and in the culture around me. Um, and it's only when you start kind of testing these things that you start to see how much shame we have actually about small, limited, weak things. Like even, even passages like consider the lilies. I mean, that seems like a kind of, yeah, I'd rather not. That's, I don't really want to think about flowers. Thanks, Jesus, you know. And yet Jesus says, if you want to understand the fullness of God's provision for you, think about the flowers. Don't just think about them, reflect on them and allow the lesson of their beauty and the, the abundance in which they live to become your truth. And so, um, there are just so many ways in which small, quiet, slow, unimportant things really have a deep shame for us, even as Christians who would claim to care about things that don't conform to the power of this world. 
In your book, you have a chapter called Learning to Love the Mess. Uh, mm. So what what's the messiness that you're loving right now? You're a pastor in Cincinnati. <laughs> and what messes are, are you loving? Learning to love is Learning the point. Um, I am actually a really anal person. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we just dropped out of our previous recording because I just wanted to clear away everything off my desktop and <laughs> X got right out. So um, my family always jokes that I'm constantly, you know, they'll put something down for five minutes and I've already put it away. Um, and so I'm naturally like control, like perfection, like tidy, and life just doesn't conform to those expectations. And so it is constantly a stretch for me and I'm I'm constantly learning to get used to the discomfort. I'm not comfortable with the messiness of life, but I'm getting used to the discomfort. And so, um, I mean, there are just so many ways that, that life is messy, right? I mean, one of the biggest stretches for me is um, being with people who I can't fix, and not just the like a question that I can't answer, but there are several people in my congregation who have situations that seem so deeply evil because they are just so interwoven with broken systems and broken relationships and there's no easy way out. And um, to be with them in that is excruciating, <laughs> but it's what we're called to. And um, I would love to just tell them, read this book, you know, and there's some, there are some moments when I feel like I got somewhere with somebody or I, I help them. They look lighter after a conversation or a prayer time with them. But these few folks that I'm thinking of, all we can do is say, yeah, I know I'm here with you. I have to believe God is good in this, but, um, it's incredibly messy. Yeah. It's, I, is there anybody that's fixable? I mean, I wonder like, is, 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 <laughs> I wonder like that, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, my hope is that we could be fixed in a moment if we saw it as God saw it. Um, and I have had moments myself like that where the situation hasn't changed and yet somehow my eyes have been healed and something is lifted. And so that's what drives me on in my work, I guess, hoping that those moments can come. But yeah, good question. <laughs> Let's hope we can. Do you think the invitation you talk about to vulnerability is and specifically you're kind of talking about it in the life of church leaders but it's got certainly wider application but do you think that's easier or harder as a woman because mm. cuz mm. i mean sometimes they're you know traditionally in a patriarchal culture where you know women are more are, are it's it it seems more permitted for a woman to embrace a, a, a something like vulnerability mm. but at the same time because oftentimes right when we include women in in sex areas of life that are traditionally male, we often try to make them do it like men. Exactly. Yeah. So you kind of answered the question there. I think that it's harder and easier. I think that I've been socialized in a way that has taught me how to be transparent, especially among other women. Um, and I, so I value that and I see the power of it. And um, I think there's just something about the experience of, of being in a woman's body regardless of how, how we're socialized that um, women have always been smaller than their male count counterparts. Their voices are squeakier. We're generally physically weaker, you know, very generalizations here, but um, there are things that come upon us as young women, just as we're starting to feel strong in our own bodies. And we suddenly get this news that something's going to happen to us once a month that we 
don't have any control over and um, may be painful and inconvenient and embarrassing. And, you know, it's an, it's an interesting moment as a young woman and that kind of hits you when you're 11 or something and you look around at the boys around you and they're just becoming filled up with themselves. They're just, <laughs> they're just beginning. And I, I actually remember looking down my noses at them and saying, oh, you're such children. You have no idea. I just had a conversation with my mother about the big things in life, you know, life and death stuff here and, and you're running around still picking your noses or whatever. Um, so how did I get onto that? Oh, so I think there are some things that just actually teach you that it's okay, that like this thing is upon your life. These many things have you have um just happen in your life that you have no control over and and yet there's a the release to that there's a peace with that that i often see um men don't don't experience in quite the same way unless they've had some kind of like serious um tragedy or or serious disability in their life or something like that so on the one hand i think it's a natural skill that we are both born with and socialized into but at the same time you're right that i watch um, I saw this with the election with Hillary being so close to, you know, she's the closest yet, I think, for a woman to be considered as president and how closely people watch and um, how much they're seeing. Can a woman do this? And how does a woman do this? And how does she dress? And how does she, you know, the tone of her voice, all of these things. And so on the other hand, you're scrutinized very, very closely. And so I watch myself and I am in several contexts, which are quite um, opposed to my being in the role that I, that I'm in. And so I often have to literally be in a room um, that's, that feels quite um, unsafe and I'm tempted, even in the way that I dress for the day, I'm tempted to put on the black jacket with the shoulder pads and pull my hair back and um, wear a little extra makeup and some heels, which is which is what I do. You know, I think it's what a lot of women would do to put on their armor, basically, you know. And I, um, I wish I could put on some extra makeup. Somewhere. Well, you have some fabulous glasses on today, so I think I you're do. yes. I do. I wish you could all see them, listeners. They're, they're fantastic. I will post um, a picture on Facebook. Please do. Um, and so in those moments, like I have actually chosen often, because I'm actually a bit of a hippie, and so um, I choose to – I went to something recently. I wore pigtails and a beret and a long flowy skirt and a pair of sandals when I wanted to put on the high heels and the black jacket. Um as a way of kind of messing with people's expectations and in some of the contexts that I'm in, people think, oh, she's a lead pastor, so she's going to be this kind of, you know, in-your-face, um, ambitious, driven, all the, women, all the you know, stereotypes about a woman who's a leader. And um, as much as it's costly, I want to kind of disarm that whole thing. And so... Um, it's not just about clothes, obviously, but that's just one example of the way that I, I want to trust. I'm testing. I want to trust that my weakness can even be strong, that God can use me even though I, this is who I am. And um, it's not always safe, and people don't always receive it well, but I feel like it's more true to what I claim. Um, and there are times when it actually brings incredible healing to myself and to other people when I choose not to get wrapped up in the um, the fear and the protecting of myself. You know, obviously we, we have to be wise, and even Jesus didn't entrust himself to certain people. But there are times where we just perpetuate um, the problem if we react in that way. And there have actually been times where I have chosen uh, to let my guard down when I feel like letting it up. 
and the very same person or people who I would say have, I've been afraid will not receive me have been healed in some way by my letting my guard down. And so to answer your question, yeah, I think it's, um, a double edged sword and, and I've actually been thinking lately, I've read a wonderful piece recently by Ursula Le Guin, the author, um, did an, a commencement speech, um, in the eighties and she talks about the mother tongue and, and she finishes it by saying women are volcanoes. And if they speak their truth as human truth, then, uh, new landscapes, new, there are new mountains. Mm. And, um, that is just such a beautiful, uh, positive. I know volcanoes can be quite violent as well, but the idea of forming something new, if we actually let that truth be seen that we don't just hide it for, when we're with other women or when we're just parenting our children, but, um, in a, a male context or a mixed context to actually let what would be stereotypically feminine or weak or soft or whatever about me to let that be seen, um, and trust that those things are truly powerful in the Jesus way that new mountains can be shaped. But, uh, it does cost me. And there are times where people, where people really take advantage, um, and, and oftentimes it doesn't look like, um, you know, there are times where it's like obvious where it's, you're a woman and you shouldn't be speaking and women aren't gifted in those ways. So your gifts must be from the devil kinds of comments, which in some ways are easier to deal with because they're direct. The harder thing to deal with is when somebody's just never seen it done the way I do it before and doesn't say, Hmm, that's interesting. Help me understand where that's coming from for you. But, um, dismisses it because it doesn't fit into the usual way of doing things and uses, you know, when there's words like that's too subjective, that's too emotional, that's um, too unstructured, that's too vague. There's all kinds of words that within the normal, strong, institutional, male ways of doing things, and I've learned those ways. I've gone to those schools. I know that that world. I can speak that language. Um, my ways of doing things look shameful and weak and vague and unstructured and undisciplined and all that kind of stuff. And yet at the same time, I have to choose to keep bringing them because I've also seen how they're incredibly powerful. Hmm. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned Hillary Clinton and the way in the election people treated her. Or something. I mean, do, is there like, is it possible that we could have a president that's more the opposite of the, everything you're trying to communicate in your book? <laughs> is it possible? Oh, right now that we could have yeah. somebody who's more the opposite. Yeah. Like, I don't I know. Like, Honestly, I, I like I feel really sorry for Donald Trump. I think he actually feels exactly how I feel hmm. and is in a world that has never allowed him to be honest about that. If he's really honest, um, I think that he is incredibly aware of his inadequacy and his small hands. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I have this really strange image of him that always comes to mind of him I was stirring a cup of coffee one day with one of those little wimpy stirrer sticks. And that's, and I just remember thinking like kind of laughing at myself because you've got it pinched between your fingers and you're stirring it around. And I thought this is like the epitome of like the most wimpy action behavior that a human can do. And then because that's so different from who Donald Trump is, I just suddenly, I guess I had nothing else to think about this day. I was just thinking, Oh, that would be kind of funny to see him doing that. It was be an interesting juxtaposition. And suddenly I can't stop seeing the Donald Trump. Ants. Yeah, Donald Trump in his kitchen early in the morning. No one else is around. It's still kind of dark, and I'm sure he doesn't stir his coffee with a stir stick. But 
but just imagining him there, just kind of thinking about the day ahead and stirring his coffee with his with his hand, small hands. You know, God does not have any shame on small hands, and um, and stirring this coffee with his little stirrer stick and something about that. My heart goes out to, and I want to. I, he seems so far gone when it comes to having a awakening about this kind of thing. But at the same time, I feel like he's so close because he's everything he's doing is so desperately trying to mask exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Like no one's that into superlatives. Who's at all comfortable with themselves. Right? Yeah. The very he best. he looks like a very, better. he looks yeah. like a very unhappy, very unfree man to me. And, uh, yeah. yeah, go on. Oh, it's really interesting. Like I, this week, um, Rachel Maddow was on Howard Stern. It was a phenomenal conversation. But, and she's a big fan of the Stern show. And she was saying that like she had listened to all these interviews he had done with Donald Trump and then went back and re-listened to them recently after the election. And she said, you know, for a guy that was so impulsive, is so impulsive character, he was really thinking about the things he was saying to you. Like he came really prepared. Like, like he would say all these absurd things like, you know, Howard, people say these Hollywood actresses are nines and tens. They're not. They're like, Angelina Jolie's like a six. Some of the, <laughs> some of the real nines and tens are, are waitresses at restaurants in New York. And, and, but, but, you know, That's what he was thinking about while he was stirring his coffee, I think. Yeah, right. But then, you know, it's interesting. Stern said he would like call me and be like, am I the best guest, Howard? You know, am I the best guest you've ever oh, had? Oh, bless and, you. And, like, I mean, they, you know, that's just so interesting that yeah. Yeah. He would like for a guy that you know has all this money. He's really concerned if he's Howard Stern. It's like mirror, mirror on the wall. Am I the fairest of them all? I mean, it's yeah. really yeah bizarre, right? <laughs> and that I've seen. You know, we've heard stories of the person who seems least likely to be healed or to be redeemed, who somehow also is so close. And so I've been challenged to pray for him in that way. That's beautiful that you that you're doing that. Well, I feel the pain. I I totally get it. Like I want to. I think we all know how small we are, and the world around us is set up to constantly tell us how we don't know enough. We haven't worked hard enough. We're not beautiful enough. We we get bombarded with these things constantly, and it's incredibly painful to confront that stuff. And um, if we're honest, I don't think we're even conscious of what we do in response to the shame of that. I think we just, it's just so painful. We don't even want to name it. We just want to make it go away, whether by numbing it or trying to fight to overcome it or um, somehow just go into depression, you know? And so, um, and so I totally like, I have such a compassion for other people who feel that same pain, but I also have so much hope because in my story, that was an incredible painful moment when I really had a confrontation with my own limitation, but, um, it became, it became a death that led to an amazing resurrection. I'm still getting to the bottom of the, the abundant life that is growing from that moment of death. So I, it makes me sad to see other people in that moment. Cause I, I, I'm in that moment all the time, but it also gives me hope because I think if we look at it in the right way and if we're open to, what the Lord can do in that place, it can be it be, it can be our life, <laughs> you mm. know. You're Australian, mm-hmm. and when did you come to this country? 1989. 1989. Oh man. Yeah, long go. time ago. Uh, now it's a really weird moment in American life. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're it seems like we're as divided as a culture 
as we've been, some people think, since the Civil War. Mm. We've got a strange political development. Is there something, as being someone who is an immigrant to this country, um, do you have a different lens on yes. I mean, I mean, how, I mean, how do you experience this cultural moment? Are there, do you yeah. notice yourself experiencing it differently than yeah. people who are native to this country? Yeah, in several ways. I've always said this country has felt like a tinderbox to me. Um, when you have a population that has been oppressed as recently as the 60s, you know, segregation is people still who are alive remember that. Um, there's, there's unrest among races for good reason. Um, when you have guns like we have <laughs> that are just everywhere, um, there's just, and when, when it's all about my personal rights, like I was, we were taught responsibilities. Rights were just something we, we knew we had, but we didn't talk as much about personal rights. There's just some of those things that are just a crazy mix. Um, and America does feel like an experiment to me. I feel like, um, this, we're still constantly trying things and learning the hard way, which is what you do when you like rebel against your parents, I guess, which I always feel like, you know, um, Australia is the younger sibling who kind of stayed at home with in the empire and kind of grew up gradually and is now just qu- kind of quietly saying like, thanks mum and dad, we don't need you so much anymore. And, and like Amer- Canada, Canada's like, yeah, that Canada's too, like right? that too. And America's this like rebel child who like said, I'm out of here, you know, I'm going to do this my own way. I'm going to do everything the opposite of how you do it, you know? And so, uh, that in some ways has been very successful, but in other ways has, has just been this huge, like learning the hard way thing. So, um, I've always felt like it was just a tinderbox waiting for something to kind of spark. And I feel like so many of these factors that we're seeing now have just been there all along and are just now coming to the surface. But, um, I do think it's, it's very different for me because Australia is this, uh, you know, 20 something million people in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And, um, we, we're very aware of the fact that we're kind of this piece of the British Empire. And, um, really when you, when you watch the news there, you're watching the news from the rest of the world. <laughs> you don't really have a lot of political or economic sway. And, um, so I feel the weight of power in this country. Um, I lived in Britain for three years and there was the, there was a similar feeling, but it was like the death of that power having, having gone through the wars and, um, kind of the death of the empire and all that kind of thing. But here it feels like when I drive around Washington DC, I feel like, whoa, this is like Rome, you know, and, uh, I wonder how long it's going to last. So it is a strange experience to be here from, from a place that really doesn't have much power at all. Yeah, I was I was listening to an interview with Deborah Burke, who's the dean of the School of Architecture at Yale, and she was saying that the interviewer is asking about design and how America seems like so much more design challenged than places like Japan or Scandinavia. And she said it's almost weird too because all this expanse and it's almost just like you can just tear down or rebuild up. There's the sense of the vastness of the land mm. and, and, and that we just sort of take it for granted. And mm. she thinks it's led to kind of a, an aesthetic challenge as far as the way we shape, you know. That's interesting. Cities. Yeah. Well, I think too that one of the reasons why European um, cities might look put together or designed in Australia is this way too, is because there is some kind of, there's more governmental kind of oversight of such things, you know, and so everybody's doing their own thing here, which sometimes is great, but 
you know, you drive down a main road and um, there's strip malls and every store has its own sign hooked up its own way and, you know, nothing, no one said, like, how can we bring all these things together and make them flow nicely and aesthetically, you know. So I think that it does cost us sometimes here when it's very much about everybody's doing their own thing, that there there are ways that that work that's helpful and good, but there are also ways that... Um, something more simple can happen when we actually learn how to work together, I think. Yeah. And Mandy, you're also, you're working on a new book project. Yes, I am. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Oh, it just keeps unfolding into more and more beautiful things. I feel like I thought I was just going for a five minute wander in uh, the woods and it's become this like, journey into the deep forest in a beautiful good way um so it started with about two years ago on my sabbatical I um thought well what am I supposed to do with this time I've got nothing else to do and I realized you know well I could be like a kid I mean I really can just totally follow my nose and when I feel like sleeping I'm going to sleep and when I feel like eating I'm going to eat and if you know there were there were just moments especially when I'm going for a walk or or creating things where there's just this little voice in you that you don't even listen to much anymore as an adult where it's like, oh, that leaf looks really soft. I wonder if it is. And then you usually keep walking. And I just kind of promised myself, I'm going to respond to every single one of those um, throughout my sabbatical. And um, that was fun for sabbatical. And I thought, well, that's just a nice eight-week experiment. But then when I went back to work, um, that little voice would not, go back to wherever it had been since my childhood. And um, so in significant, serious decision-making moments, that voice was still there. And I had to figure out how do I lead with that childlike kind of instinct still there. And as I did, I started to see, I think this is the spirit <laughs> or, or there's some way the spirit uses my, my own childlike instinct. And so I came to see that this is incredibly powerful, that that God himself knows childlikeness and um, meets us in that place where we where we can reconnect with our childlikeness. And I'm not just talking about like being whimsical and um, playful, although that's a part of it, but children are incredibly courageous and honest and open. And they're not filtered. Yeah, like yeah. If, so, like, like if a seven-year-old or seventy-five-year-old tells you you're on track, <laughs> or you're overweight or something, they're you honest, need to right? It's yeah. in between then you learn to bullshit, but yeah, like yeah, because old people don't have any time to do it anymore. A lot of them, but but that yeah, I mean, children are unfiltered, right? right. I mean, they're they're not they're not. I mean, most of us learn this sort of self-editing process to present ourselves yeah. as somebody we want people to see. Children don't do that. Right, exactly. And that's kind of where it comes to back to the vulnerability thing, um, that children are not a children at least up until a certain age are not ashamed of being limited. And so they're able to just deal with it instead of trying to run away from it or hide it from one another. And so there's immense power in that. And um this actually is showing itself to be um connected you know it's it's showing me what it means to follow the spirit which is terrifying in many ways to do things that are countercultural or go against my own self-preservation um it also is connected to how we understand salvation for me and um i'm seeing i'm putting words to how i understand what salvation means in different ways when we see ourselves as children um but it's interesting because again there's so much shame around the idea of the child and when i've talked to people about this 
um, they always have to say, but not childish, not childish. And we don't have a similar kind of hesitation about being adult. Right, and so right. we've, um, we've got that linguistic kind of category of childlike versus childish, which is helpful. Um, but we don't also have something where we would say like people have started talking about adulting. That's a new word, you know, that actually is kind of helpful, which is a, a positive way of like, I'm contributing to society. I'm, I'm keep getting up in the morning and I'm going to work and I'm taking care of my family as adulting. Um, and I, so I just made up the word adultiness to be like <laughs> the childish version of adulthood that we don't have that hesitation around being too adult. Um, and yet this is exactly what we're talking about with Donald Trump and with all of the temptations that we all have to always look strong, to always seem to have all of the answers. And there's actually, if you've ever read The Little Prince, um, there's actually a, a wonderful kind of parade of adultiness in there as he goes to these other different planets. And there's all these people. There's a, um, there's a man who counts the stars and puts the number in a drawer. And now he feels very rich because he has the number of stars in a drawer. And, um, there's all these very important people on their own little planets. And at the end of the visit to each of the planets, the little, the little prince says, Adults sure are strange. And so I don't think we have those kinds of hesitations about how we're being too adulty. And um, <clears throat> there's, there's something beautiful uh, about the opportunity to confront our uh, ways that we are small and to find God in that place. I think that that moment is, is an opportunity for invitation to to rely on our father mm. and um, instead we fill it up with all of the ways that we want to look strong and independent and adulty. So it's just, um, it's just becoming, it's a, so beautiful. I can't wait to figure out how to put it all into words, but it's coming together. So, yeah. So do you have like a title? Oh, I wanted to call it how to be human because I think that's actually what it's about is how to be a limited human being and not be afraid of that or ashamed of that. I haven't got great feedback on that from other people. So I think what is my working title at the moment? Um, good news for grownups and <laughs> <laughs> the, um, because it really does become about a way to share, a way to describe the gospel too. Um, and it's, uh, the subtitle is something about, um, the serious discipline of childlikeness in a power-hungry world or something like that. So um, this is really um, also helping us heal from all of the things we, we've been talking about with power, you know, Wolf and all these other writers who um, have raised questions about how power works in the human world and especially in the developed world. Um, so it seems kind of silly to say, well, then we have a model for this, in Jesus saying, unless you become like a child, you, you can't enter the kingdom. But that's another thing, just like the, um, where you started with talking about, uh, weakness <clears throat> that in our weakness, he is strong is kind of a throwaway thing. I've not seen too much written or spoken about with that. And I've never really been encouraged to really press into that in my own experience. And in the same way, I've, I've not heard much talked about saying, well, then how, if it's true that we can't enter the kingdom unless we become like a child, wouldn't we spend more time actually figuring that out and exploring that? Um, and I can say from my own experience, I still have not come to the bottom of the beauties of that. Um, and it, it's un, it's unfolding into just such a wonderful invitation into true relationship with 
with our Creator. Yeah, you know, and I shared that sort of podcast sermon with you, the Rob Bell. Yeah, which I loved. Did. Yeah, and that was some of the clearest communication of what you're talking about. Yes. I thought, and you know, whether or not you believed in God, you could see the truth of what he was saying. I mm -hmm. mean, yes. With the sign of Jonah, death and resurrection, and get, needing to like get off the sort of competitive, uh, am I enough, amassing thing, yes. you know, measuring myself in significance of, of things I could like put in my cupboard or you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I, I thought that, and it was compelling. I mean, I, like, yeah. I was listening, I thought this is, if I was going to have to explain this to me, why the story of Jesus is it's rendered to us in the Gospels makes sense, it's this. It's mm, this message. Exactly. It's the sign of Jonah. It's, and I uh, think um, when I have talked about this before, people have said, oh, that just feels like self-help, which makes me so sad because I think we're not getting the point. But the... Um, that's the what people whole, say, oh, that sounds therapeutic. And I'm yeah. always like, what's wrong with that? Right. Like, that's good, right? Therapy's a good thing. Right? Well, and I also I am finding, you know, a lot of the existentialist kinds of writers have some um, interest in psychology and theology and where they come together. And I think we probably um, could be talking more about those things. I think we understand ourselves more in psychological ways than metaphysical ways these days anyway. And many of our ways of explaining salvation is still growing out of a 400 year old or more you know way of understanding it and so um i think that the usual like cross across the chasm you know the bridge from jesus from humans to god across that chasm that's helpful it has its it has its um purposes but i think it's limited and for me um this moment of salvation is in acknowledging how much we feel this void, not necessarily between God and ourselves, because I think that that implies a Christian worldview. We would have to say, oh, I know that there are ultimate rules and morals in the world and I broke them and so I feel far from God because I broke his rules. Um, don't think that works in a post-Christian context where people just don't acknowledge those things. And But I think what we all do experience is the void of how little we, how much, the void between what we are and what we think we should be. And um, we don't talk about that very much, but Brene Brown says the people who have the most shame are the ones who talk about it the least. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think that's our culture really. And so we're also in a culture which adds more shame to us with through advertising. We're bombarded daily with all of these messages about how someone else is more beautiful, more clever, more successful, more wealthy, whatever. And um, so it just, it just perpetuates that shame and we're supposed to be small. We're supposed to be children of God. We're supposed to be weak and limited. We're human beings. And, you know, in the garden, Adam and Eve felt that smallness and said, we want to be like God and something changed in the world. And we are repeating that story every single day as we try to fill the space between who we are and who we sense we should be without stopping to think, but that's who God is. He does. We don't need to be that. We long for it because we want to be it, but maybe the ultimate thing is for us to long for it because we want to be with it. <laughs> and um, the beautiful thing then is that huge thing that we're trying to work to, We, in our own right, in our own power, we are trying to be enough to fulfill that, and yet at the same time that beautiful big thing came down, laid itself over this human form, and showed us what it means to live and to suffer and to die and to be born again and to live with the spirit of the living God within these 
clay vessels. And um, that feels more hopeful to me. It feels more like reconciliation. And um, I'm still trying to figure out how to explain that, but it's exactly the way that I would say I experience um, what this salvation actually, when it, how salvation feels real to me and how this really feels like good news. And the beautiful thing about that is it's not, it feels both, both the bridge metaphor and this way of describing it feel very individualistic. But the beautiful thing is when we become that clay vessel that is filled with the spirit, the spirit naturally is a communal thing and it fills us to overflowing. And that's where the fruit of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit are constantly, you can't be filled with the spirit and hold it in. It wants to get out and it wants to connect with others who are also filled with the spirit and it wants to overflow. And so it's not this individualistic thing, although it definitely is very personal, but it's not private. Um, and so I think we, sometimes when we realize that, uh, we've had such an individualistic approach, we go to the opposite extreme and we almost feel like we have to be this kind of formless mass of melted human experience or something. But like, you know, we still, there are very personal stories in scripture of very, of, of very particular people, um, having, having confrontations. Tim Keller once said that this kind of kingdom oriented gospel that it's it sometimes for people it's all social and and, and, and it heavy emphasis on liturgical reality and social etiquette and he says i just wonder if people that are um living and dwelling that message all the time if they're ever going to say you know um my chains fell off uh uh my heart my was heart free, was my free. Was, you know I, yeah. I, I rose went up and followed thee you know like there's this that yeah like, there has to be a personal experience of it if it's going to be a communal experience because a community of people is made up of individuals yeah and, <laughs> and it's, this it's, is it's, a mystery yeah it's personal yeah i think it, it's to, it has to be both Paul Zoll explained the Reformation once. I heard him teaching this class, and he said, he said the Reformation was, a, it was started by these young guys who were split off from themselves, that the religious cultural huh. system around them couldn't let them be free and be accept who they were. Mm. And they were divided and split off, and they had to integrate that. Hmm. And part of the Reformation theology was a sort of proclamation that enabled people to be reintegrated, to be to be not split off from themselves. Mm. So that for that is and ought not to be such a wedge that mm-hmm. kind of created this, you know, all this psychological kind of traumatic freight. You know, and I think mm. that what you're what you're onto is what I think every. It's funny, Rob Bell, and that's one of the, yeah, he hit he hit the nail on the head in that podcast. I think. He said that he knows this woman in Hollywood, you know, that it's like one of the best transcendental meditation instructors, right? And she says every person that comes to it, what they have in common is they feel like they're not enough. Yeah, yeah. And there's something in us that feels a bit guilty when the gospel actually feels like it connects to a felt need, as if we're compromising it or something like that. Like, oh, that's so beautiful to think that God actually meets us where we are and that this truly is good news that we can experience in our daily lives. But what did Aaron say? The glory of God is man fully alive. Mm, I love that. And there's something true to that, right? Yeah. That, that like, and it is, and it is. I feel like we see that on the heart, on the on the horizontal level, like when. We like when we're drawn to people that are fully that that are look alive in their own skin, because mm. somehow it it seems that you know I, I mean I think most of the time we are anyway. Yeah, it's very attractive people like that. Right, it's abundant life. I think it just overflows. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Manny, thanks for talking with me. I just want to say this something. was fun. I want to say that like so 
we've done several podcast things together and I've gotten a lot of comments and feedback on them. And I want to say that, that people that are listening to this, that you are like how you talk with me in, in a conversation. It's exactly the you I experience mm-hmm. as a friend. Mm-hmm. And, very, and that's lovely. I mean, you're a very genuine person and I really appreciate that. Well, I think that's part of my testing. Can I truly be seen and still be accepted? And sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't happen, but for what I gain when it does happen, it's worth, it's worth it. So that's, that's affirming to me to hear you say that that's what you're seeing. Cause that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm testing out that for each of us, that we can truly be ourselves and that there is some goodness that God has in that for each of us. And finish that book because I want to read it. No, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mandy. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Mandy's book, The Vulnerable Pastor, and look for her writing in Leadership Journal and other places all over the interwebs and print media world. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee.